Hello and welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to episode 23. And before I turn to my amazing guests this week, my usual pitch for Counterpunch, uh, especially now, especially as Counterpunch is uh, uh, damn near on its hands and knees begging for donations to keep it going for the coming year, uh, trying to raise this money. It's a good time to talk about the importance of Counterpunch with the kind of media landscape that we're looking at now. You look at all of these issues from Syria to Ukraine to uh, everything, you know, Bernie Sanders, the political scenario in the U.S., all over the world. Counterpunch is in many ways uh, away from the crowd in terms of how it presents a left alternative view that is not necessarily uh, within what I would call the pseudo-alternative media. And there's so many examples of that. We've talked about it recently in the last couple of weeks with Jeffrey Sinclair with Don DeBar, with a few other people. We've we've been talking about this, and I highlight it again because I just want to remind listeners of the importance of having a space on the left with which we can critique these issues from a perspective that is truly independent. I think that that is critical. Plus, of course, Counterpunch has a print magazine. How many of those exist anymore? Uh, print magazine that comes into your mailbox with artwork, with great columns, with all of that interesting stuff. I highly recommend it. I also think that it is important to be a contributor to independent media, uh, to not give your money to these corporate interests, but to give your money to small independent outlets that really do provide an important uh, public service. So um, again, go to Counterpunch. You could pay with PayPal. You could call the number there. You could donate via, you know, via the internet using your credit card, whatever works for you. Also, uh, this show is on iTunes. Please go to iTunes. Give us a positive review. Help to drive this show up the recommendation charts. It helps to bring Counterpunch Radio to more and more listeners. Um, All of that being said, I do want to turn to my first guest, who I'm so excited to speak with uh, today. Uh, Modisri Mukherjee is on the program. Uh, You can follow her work on her website, modisri.com. That is M-A-D. D-H-U-S-R-E-E dot com. Uh, Modisri is a journalist and an author. She is the author of the amazing book, which I just recently read, Churchill's Secret War, The British Empire and the Ravaging of India During World War II. If you have not read this book, if you have not heard of this book, you absolutely have to get your hands on it. It is a, uh, I mean, it is essential reading, especially for someone who considers themselves anti-imperialist, anti-colonial. Modisri Mukherjee, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Thanks so much, Eric. I've uh, admired Counterpunch for a long time, and it's a real privilege to be on. Well, and- the, the, the privilege is all ours. Thank you so much. <laughs> um, I want to start off with, well, let me put it this way. This book, listeners, is I mean, it is essential reading. If you don't know the history of India during World War II, the period leading up to Indian uh, independence and the post-colonial period, this is a book that you absolutely have to read. Uh, We're talking about the Bengal famine uh, within the context of World War II. And uh, Modisri, your book, I mean, really, I I I can't say enough about it. And so I want to start off by asking you about your interest in this particular 
period, the Bengal famine. Um, I know you've sort of mentioned in the book you had a lifelong interest in this. I'm wondering about the combination of your personal motivations for writing this book and maybe the political or ideological motivation or context for wanting to write this book. How did it come together in your mind and what drove you to this particular subject? Well, I should perhaps begin by saying that I'm not a historian. I'm a scientist by training. I have a PhD in physics. And, uh, but I did grow up in Bengal, which is where the book is set. And uh, I was in a middle-class family. We weren't too well off, but we had servants. And I remember we, we, we had a lot, we saw a lot of poverty. I mean, I, I, you couldn't eat a banana in the bazaar without having all, you know, hungry eyes on you. And I would ask my parents, so why are we so poor? And they would say, oh, the Industrial Revolution left us behind. There was really no understanding of uh, where that poverty came from. Now, um, it's taken me a long time to sort of try and get to that question, trying to answer it for myself. And what happened was that uh, I was working at Scientific American. I quit to write a book. Um, the Land of Naked People. It's about an Aboriginal people. And I understood a a bit of how the world treats uh, natives like American Indians, and in this case, the people whose colonization is still going on. And after that, I started wondering, so maybe now that I have a bit of uh, colonial history under my belt because of that book, uh, they were first colonized in 1857 by the British, Maybe I could try to answer for myself a deeper question, which is where does poverty come from? And Mm. when I tried to read that subject, it was so impenetrable. People don't even agree on what poverty is. So I thought, you know, being a physicist and what physicists do is really simplify things. I thought I'd look at the single dimension of famine. And when I was a kid, I had a neighbor who was, had, who, was in his maybe 70s or 80s, and he had been a civil servant during the wartime. And uh, he would give me books to read and generally encourage me to learn about the world. And at one time he mentioned the famine, and that's the weird thing. I had never heard of it until he mentioned it, and I was about 14 or 15 at the time. And he said uh, food was taken away so that the Japanese soldiers wouldn't get it, and so that the British, uh, the imperial armies, well, British imperial armies could use it. And uh, he wouldn't say any more about that. And he just he just clammed up. And um, that question, though, remained in my mind. And I went back and I asked my mother, and she remembered it. She had lived through it. She hadn't suffered from hunger as such, but she had seen these people begging on the streets for pan. Pan is... Uh, the starchy water you have left over after you boil rice. So middle-class families would boil rice in their pots and then they would pour out this water and people would be lined up outside to, they'd be grabbing for it and fighting for it, this water. And that she remembered, but for some reason it had simply not been part of my consciousness. Um, and I, I, I was curious, I wanted to learn more and uh, I, I suppose for me, um, that's what really drives me. Um, I always want to understand things I don't understand. Yeah, it, it's interesting to me that 
you would encounter this what is clearly a very personalized issue the the Bengal famine world war 2 that is something that is so close to you i mean if your parents lived through it it is historically very close um and yet it seems like such a discrete historical episode something so far removed from your own life and i guess to some degree that is in many ways part of uh the legacy of colonialism and the legacy of class and class divisions that uh, someone whose parents lived through that period to have no real concept of that. I mean, there is something deeply uh, disturbing about that because, for instance, if you're the child of uh, survivors of the, uh, you know, the Jewish Holocaust, for example, it seems like not a day goes by that you don't encounter that uh, personal slash political history with which you are the living legacy. Yes, and I think the answer to that, uh, you're very right. And what I really discovered was that uh, the famine had affected the poor, the rural poor. Mm -hmm. It had not affected people who lived in cities. And it had not affected people like landowners who had been able to stockpile enough rice. And uh, when I went searching for survivors, I found that they simply could not be found within my family circles or my friends' circles who were all middle class or upper class. And uh, I, I had to search very hard and get to a remote village before I found real survivors of the famine. And the class dimension is interesting. Basically, anyone in the city was considered to be an important part of the war effort. They were protected through rations. If you were working in the railways, if you were working in a bank, even if you were working in industries like tea or coal, you were protected. And uh, the people who weren't protected were the people who actually grew the food. Um, you had tremendous amounts of cash flowing in. It was all paper money being printed so that India could supply Britain with all of the goods and resources it needed for the war. And the paper money simply sucked out everything from the countryside and brought it into the factories a lot of the goods were exported. Um, of course, that's, this is all something I detail in the book. But what you had essentially is just staggering inflation. I think the money supply increased by seven or eight times. And all of the money was in the hands of people who were spending on behalf of the war for factory owners and industrialists. And um, in my mother's case, her two uncles were working railways and they brought home rations that fed a lot of people. Yeah, it's you know it's it's very interesting to look at it in these sort of du from these dual lenses, right? On the one hand, you're talking about uh, a a very specific issue, this famine, but in in many ways, you know, famine. And I know that uh, before we before we started recording here, we were mentioning Mike Davis and his book Late Victorian Holocaust, which I also highly recommend for listeners. But um, you know, on the one hand, you know, Davis's book talks about the sort of the confluence between the political and the environmental issues, El Nino and, and, and climate and all of these things. And your book, in many ways, also kind of deals with these two sort of uh, complementary issues. On the one hand, this very personal story uh, of these people in this, in this place, in this time. And on the other hand, there is the economic and political story that you're telling. And this is something that I find really interesting because because, yes, 
The book is about famine, it is about British culpability, but I think it's also really a commentary on the nature of imperialism and colonialism, and especially the unique nature of British imperialism and the empire. So let's talk about that a little bit, um, how the story of Churchill's actions and Churchill's responsibility for this famine, how does that story really act as a metaphor in some ways for British imperialism and colonialism? colonialism generally? Well, I think um, if you look at the whole history of British imperialism in India, you understand how crucial it was to setting up the world that we find ourselves in nowadays. So when the British first got to India, that was uh, as traders, the first conquest was in 1757 by Robert Clive. And uh, before that, India had had uh, the world's largest economy. It was exporting a quarter of the world's manufactures, most of which was cotton fabrics, a few silk fabrics. And within a few years of Robert Clive's um, conquest, the East India Company, on whose behalf he conquered Bengal, had uh, raped the uh, province to such an extent that there was the a far worse famine than in 1943. In the famine of 1770, one third of the people died, some 10 million people. And that's where you see this kind of state-backed corporate colonialism, what it can do to people. Mm-hmm. And uh, the East India Company basically conquered India over the next uh, centuries. And as uh, Mike Davis tells you um, in his book, um and I also sort of described the economics of how it worked. What happened was that uh, the Industrial Revolution coincided with colonialism. So you have 1757, Bengal being conquered, this staggering amount of loot, mostly jewels and gold at the time, leaving, leaving India for England. And this loot is going into the Industrial Revolution and providing um, funds, um, capital, for developing the roads and the uh, and the uh, railways and other things in England and also into steamships and so on and they fed back on each other and Britain start and the new st- uh, mills started operating in in England and the mills they were producing cotton fabrics they couldn't possibly compete with India except that India was now a colony so India's uh, industry was systematically destroyed if you were a English woman who had been living in India and brought back a suitcase full of fabrics, they'd be, your suitcase would be emptied out by customs authorities. You weren't allowed to bring in a lot of the kinds of fabrics. Tariffs were huge. Instead, the entire tariff structure was arranged so that India started importing British manufactured cottons. Within the space of a few decades, India had turned into a net importer of English cotton. So you see the industrial revolution, the whole Um, I mean, England as the center of industry at the time, it had like a 50-year head over the U.S. and Germany because it had India as a colony. So the historians, you know, have stated for a fact that India was the basis of the capitalist global government. So the British banks, they lent to United States and Germany, which then imported British machines and started nurturing their industries. And so... What happened was that, as Hitler described it in um, a speech to industrialists, 
the white race has achieved this remarkable development. We have these world central factories where the world provides raw materials and cheap mar and markets where we can send them all kinds of junk. And that was the system that was set up by this kind of dual interaction between imperialism and, um, well, what was it? It was imperialism and capitalism. They go together. Historically, you can't pull them apart. Exactly. You know, I mean, obviously, Lenin's famous formulation, imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism, and that in many ways, what Lenin talks about in that in, in, in that work is, to a large degree, what you're what you're describing here, namely that British capitalism and the development of modern capitalism in the capitalist system required India as a captive market within which these European uh, monopolies on manufacturers and, and, and otherwise could flood that market could exploit that market while simultaneously exploiting it for its raw materials, for its natural resources. I mean, this is how we understand imperialism today. And so in many ways, British India, British control of India is sort of the the stereotype, the, the, the sort of the or the prototype, I guess we could say, for uh, modern colonialism. Well, exactly. I mean, if you look right now, I mean, the imperial... Well, the colonialism is formally over, but the system still prevails. Yeah. I mean, right now, the what is it? The 20% of the richest people in the world use 80% of the world's resources. How does that work? I mean, supposedly India is a free country now, but it's still, um, well, I would argue that a lot of its econ economic freedom has already been given away. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Um you know, there's something else here that, and, and you've mentioned it already, we've kind of touched on it, but this, this issue of capitalism uh, generally, I think that this figure is really central in this story um, because one of the things that people have to understand about the Bengal famine is that part of the reason, now certainly Churchill's policies, British, specific British policies during wartime obviously were a major factor here, but behind the scenes, we need to also understand that it is British uh, colonialism and capitalism, which drove the conditions that then created this famine, specifically the creation of monoculture in India, uh, the, the drive to plant jute and cotton and other uh, uh, crops for export purposes rather than for uh, sustenance, rather than for sustainable uh, agricultural purposes. And all of these issues, these economic factors were a part of this larger context of this famine. So I want to talk a little bit about that, how British economic policies drove the conditions for this famine. Well, generally, I mean, India was the uh, risk absorber for Britain in every war. But more broadly, um, if you look at the Victorian era, which is what uh, Mike Davis writes about, what happened by that time was that all of the you, Britain had taken pretty much all the jewels and gold that was possible out of India. And instead, um, India was exporting. India was still exporting, but it was exporting crops. It was exporting the produce of the fields. It was exporting opium, as you remember the opium war that was foisted on China. That was grown in India. It was exporting cotton until uh, the American market, uh, American producers came in. It was exporting, most of all, wheat, 
And uh, it was, uh, there's a colonial era Indian economic historian, Ramesh Dutt, he calculated that the amount of, the value of the exports that India had from its fields would have fed 25 million people for a full year. And this is the, all of the food and other things, all of the land that's been given over to cash crops, if it had instead been in India, it would have fed 25 million people per year. But instead, you had millions of people dying in famines. And what, and all of the earnings that India had from that export, that was going to England to meet its own trade deficits with the United States and Germany. So that came to 20 million pounds a year by the end of the Victorian era. So here you have the situation where India is basically exporting everything it grows. There isn't enough left to feed the people. And everything that it's making from that exports is also going to um, England. And that was the system that was simply intensified in wartime. So in World War One, you, know, you had similar exploitation of Indian goods. Um, you didn't have a famine, but you did have this incredible influenza epidemic that killed anywhere between 12 million to 16 million people. And it's absolutely clear that uh, the, uh, the Spanish flu, which came back from Indian soldiers who had been fighting in the trenches of France, it, it came back to India and it reached this epidemic form because Indians were so malnourished. So instead of a famine, you had a flu epidemic that killed many times more people. And World War II was just the same thing. The exploitation simply intensified. Um, India provided goods worth uh, two billion pounds to the war of that some one billion pounds was paid back later by England, by Britain. And one billion was never paid back. That was just considered to be what India uh, had paid for her own defense, although, of course, we all know it had nothing to do with India's defense. You know, another thing that is interesting that comes across in your book, and I, I just, you know, it's emotionally taxing in many ways reading through it, but the simple fact that part of colonialism, uh, specifically the colonial relationship between Britain and India, was that these people in rural Bengal who were dying of uh, famine and of starvation, they were dying not necessarily for the survival of British people on the island. They were surviving for their comfort. See, this is something that I think uh, is really kind of a devastating critique of Churchill and of Professor Lindemann, his close advisor, and some of the others who were in his circle, namely that it was not that they were trying to ensure Britain's survival at the cost of uh, the Indian poor. They were trying to ensure British public opinion and its comfort, that it could still have its luxury goods, that they could still have their, you know, for example, their white bread as opposed to their wheat bread and things like this. Uh, that is a, a difficult pill to swallow, something that I think is a, a devastating uh, critique, quite frankly, of Churchill and of the British. Yes, I know that that's one of the things that's really startling because you, you can sort of understand it if it's, uh, you know, survival of one versus survival of the other. Most right. people would choose their own. But you're absolutely right. It was none of that at all. At this time that uh, Churchill refused to send relief to India, uh, food was actually being stockpiled 
for after the war. Yep. Because at that time, Britain, you know, the, the, the food prices would go up because, you know, France would need to be fed. All of the liberated countries would need to be fed. Food prices were, would go up. So all of these, um, there was a lot of wheat, as I write, in Australia. And these ships, and a lot of them were, in fact, Indian ships because all of India's merchant shipping had been taken over for use by the British fleet. So these ships were collecting grain in Australia. They were going past India. They were probably refueling refueling in Mumbai or Bombay. And they were going on to uh, either to England with tea and other things that were still being extracted, even though Indians didn't have rice. They were still supplying tea for um, Britain and also for stockpiling to, uh, to feed the future, so to speak, to make sure that Britain didn't completely collapse economically after the war. What's what's really startling, and you kind of alluded to it just now, is the simple fact that part of the problem, and this we know very much today as well, of course, part of the problem wasn't just uh, British capitalism and and just the, the, the market and the system that it created, but as you were alluding to, speculation, right? That there was a there was a problem within uh, the sort of the circles as far as speculation goes with regard to these exports, speculation on what we would now think of in the finance market as, you know, futures and f- stocks and things like that. And it's just very startling to me that, for instance, you write about it in the book, that the Americans, for instance, had these this tonnage that they could have provided in shipping. There were other countries that also could have provided the, 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 the requisite shipping. And even that uh, was refused by the British for deeply cynical reasons. And that is also something that is, I think, a real uh, condemnation of Churchill and uh, his responsibility for this famine. Well, that's right. I mean, the Americans had offered to send relief. And the British turned them down because they didn't want, they were worried about America's post-war influence in places like India. And they just didn't want the Americans to save the Indians when they wouldn't themselves. So, yes, it was uh, completely cynical. And, in fact, the British had enough ships of their own, which, of course, they had sort of wrangled out of the U.S. And they weren't about to divert these ships to send any relief because, um, uh, that would have almost meant admitting to the Americans, who were pretty suspicious, uh, that they hadn't actually needed all the ships that they got, after all. Uh, we're about to head into break, uh, but before we do, I just want to finish off this point, because it, in many ways it brings us forward to today, because a lot of these problems that, we, that, that you document extensively in the book, I think uh, in many ways are related to what we see today in India and in the global south, generally speaking. For instance, you have uh, – you have – well, more than a billion people in this world who are suffering from malnutrition, uh, who are starving, who are going to bed hungry, but there is no shortage of food. Uh, there is actually tremendous surplus of food in terms of the global market. So what we're, what we're looking at in the 21st century is an issue of inequitable distribution rather than, uh, you know, a lack of yields. And this is one of these major issues that comes up when you 
you talk about agricultural issues, when you talk about, for instance, GMO crops, the biotech industry, uh, pesticides, uh, industrial farming, all of these policies, all of these programs that have been pushed into places like India uh, because of the the nature of this global system. So uh, very quickly, if we could, how does the content of the book relate to what we see happening in uh, India and in the global south today as far as, you know, ConAgra and Cargill and these major corporations controlling the food supply, the seed supply and chemicals and all of these other issues. Of course, we know the history of that in India with the pollution and the poisoning of the rural poor. We've seen that over and over again. So speak to that a little bit uh, in terms of the situation today? Well, what the colonial system set up was, as I said, uh, India's landmass being basically used to satisfy the needs and desires of the, of the colonizing countries. And to a large extent, that's the purpose it still serves, whether it's World Bank imperialism or IMF imperialism or WTO. And what's happened is that the India's Land usage is being converted from small-scale farmers who grow food to feed themselves into large-scale industrial farming of cash crops, things like biofuels that aren't food. They don't feed anyone. So on the one hand, you have a lot of land being diverted from food crops, and this is especially true for the coarse grains like millets and barley that the poor used to eat, all of that dry land. Uh, I think it's fallen by something like a quarter in a few decades, um, has been given over to cash crops for exports. And that I see is the real danger. And of course, the the other part of it, it's a huge, you know, what you're asking is a huge question. I, I could I talk for a long time about it. I know, it. I know, I know. I'm sorry, to ask uh, <laughs> you to, I'm sorry to ask you to encapsulate it in a couple minutes. Yeah, well, the other part of it is that India's biodiversity is now also being sold. Yeah. So, the latest introduction that you have in India is GM mustard. Now, India is the center for mustard biodiversity. It's the origin of this crop. And the story of mustard is very interesting because India was almost self-sufficient in edible oil production. And mustard in India is mainly used to produce a kind of a very spicy oil to cook in, sharp oil. And uh, what happened was that in the 1990s, the the big inter, inter, international financial institutions, they came in and they said they forced India to slash its tariffs, the, the tariffs that were protecting domestic producers. Mm-hmm. So the tariffs went down from something from, uh, I think they were, they were huge and they went down to almost nothing. So what happened was that Indian uh, edible oil producers, most of which were really marginal, some of them were indigenous farmers, were wiped out. Instead, India is now the world's largest producer of palm oil. And you know where that comes from. It comes from burning down the forests in Indonesia and rendering the orangutans extinct. And that's what happened was that you have this. And now the same planners are saying, well, India has a problem. It's importing too much edible oil. So here's the solution. Here's a GM mustard. And that's the process by which You know, these problems are created. They create the problems and then they produce the solutions, which are, of course, as we all know, non-solutions. They're not going to work. 
Right, exactly. Like, for instance, uh, you know, uh, creating creating a pesticide to kill weeds, which then forces uh, the, the, the change in the genetic structure of the crops, which then creates the need for, you know, weed, which become weed killer resistant, which then creates the need for genetically modified seeds and so forth. Well, exactly. In fact, the, well, I'm not quite sure what the properties of this GM mustard is, but it, I believe it's supposed to be used with a particular pesticide. So there you have the same formula as Roundup soy. Yep. Right. Uh, so, you know, in after a few years of this, nothing else is going to grow on the crop uh, on that field except that particular GM mustard. Right. It's it's a formula for slavery. Well, that's exactly right. And and we see uh, this economic system, this sort of entrapment of India, we see that playing out all the time. If you follow, um, you know, the, the this really tragic story of how many suicides have happened in rural India and the pattern of these suicides and what are the common factors between them, you see that uh, these agricultural policies, as far as neoliberal capitalism goes, these agricultural policies have in many ways uh, uh, driven the destruction of families, the creation of uh, depression and suicide and all of these other problems that are now in many ways epidemic in the countryside in India. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I just wanted to mention there's a brilliant Indian economist named Prabhat Patnaik. And he calls these policies, uh, he says that the objective of all of these neoliberal policies is income deflation in rural areas. So mm. if people don't have money in hand, they can't even buy the food that they need. And you have to understand that the World Bank has changed India's rationing system, which used to be universal, to a targeted system, which actually leaves out many of the poor. But anyway, they, can't, they don't even have the food that they need. So what happens is that the land, it becomes much more profitable to take it over to a cash crop than to grow food for the people. Yep. And this is the sort of the underlying um, source of a lot of, well, the cause of a lot of the distress. And also, the he says that this is the, if you look at all of the financial, agricultural, all of the policies together, their objective is to reduce the amount of buying power of the rural poor so that the land that they depend on for survival can instead be given over for cash crops, export crops, and other things that the rich and the powerful need. Absolutely. And just to put a final point on that, um, one of the other aspects of this that we haven't quite mentioned is is, is finance capitalism and specifically entrapping uh, Indian peasants in an endless cycle of debt. And you see that in many forms. You see that on a macro scale with IMF and World Bank policies at the national level, but you also see it even at the individual level, one of the major drawbacks of the so-called microloans that have become all the rage in the last decade or so, that even individual uh, farmers oftentimes find themselves in an entirely unsustainable and self-destructive cycle of debt and debt servicing. Oh, absolutely. And there are two reasons for that. One is these new seeds are expensive. GM cotton is, it costs like thousands of rupees a packet, whereas previously, of course, the seed saving regime where farmers saved and used their own seeds, that has long been gone for the most part. 
though some people are trying to revive it. But the previous seeds, they just cost at least uh, less than a tenth of that amount. So first of all, you're having these very expensive seeds and pesticides and fertilizers being pushed so that farmers need to borrow money if they're going to farm at all. But at the same time, you've had a withdrawal of state credit from rural areas. So India had, until the 1990s, more or less grown on a socialist path, where there was an effort to provide rural credit and so on. But after the neoliberal era, starting in the 1990s, a lot of these state banks started to withdraw credit from rural areas. And this was also part of the World Bank IMF description. It's actually cheaper to get a loan to buy Mercedes-Benz than to buy seeds. Hmm. So... um, What happened was that really unscrupulous moneylenders and some of these microfinance institutions came in to fill the gap. And rural India, uh, I know people who have, who pay 50% interest on loans. Unbelievable. So, yes. uh, And that's really what's driving the, uh, the suicide epidemic. First, it's just, uh, it's just so many things all at the same time hitting, uh, you know, like, uh, it's just unbelievable uh, the the uh, the numbers of different fa- ways in which the Indian farmer is being attacked. That's right. Okay, uh, let's take a quick break, and on the other side of the break, I want to return us to the book and some other really important historical questions. A few of which I think are deliberately uh, uh, not discussed generally, as far as the discourse about colonial India. So, anyway, stick with us. On the other side of the break, I continue the conversation with Modusri Mukherjee. You're listening to Counterpunch Radio. We'll be right back. যারা কাফেতে মোড়েতে বসে আছো আমি তোমাদের ছেড়ে চললাম তোমরা হতাশ পেয়ালা ভরে নিলে আমি রক্ত ঝরিয়ে কাঁদলাম যারা কাফেতে মোড়েতে বসে আছো চার মিনারের ধোয়াতে জীবন পেয়ালা জমাট ধুয়াশা চালোর মোড়ে মোড়ে ঘরে বিশিত মুক্তি পিপাশা চার মিনারের ঘোয়াতে জীবন পেয়ালা জমাট ফুয়াশা লোর চালোর মোড়ে মোড়ে ঘরে বিশিত মুক্তি পিপাশা আজ ভেঙে যাব কাল জুড়ে যাব তবু ভাঙতে ঘুরতে চলেছি আজ ভেঙে যাব কাল জুড়ে যাব তবু ভাঙতে ঘুরতে চলেছি কাল বসে কিটা তোমাদের দেব খুঁজে আনতে চলেছি যারা কাছেতে মোড়েতে বসে আছো তোমরা কেঁদো না কোনো শান্ত না আমি দেব না 
সূর্য ডোবার সংকেতে দেখো মুক্তি রঙের নিশানা ওগো হতাশ তোমরা দেবো না কোনো শান্ত নামি দেব না সূর্য ডোবার সংকেতে দেখো মুক্তি রঙের নিশানা Welcome back to Counterpunch Radio. Uh, my name is Eric Dreitzer. I'm chatting with Modusri Mukherjee. Again, the book, Absolute Must Read, Churchill's Secret War, The British Empire and the Ravaging of India During World War II. It's a couple of years old now. I'm sort of a latecomer to this book, but I mean, whoa, it, 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 it blew me away. I, and it's crazy, I have to tell you, because... I knew a lot of this history, actually. I, I was at least somewhat aware of it, but really, I mean, the book is a is a seething indictment of uh, Churchill and of British policies, and there's a lot that's in this book that you're going to learn when you pick it up. And um, one of these things, even for, even for me, who knew some about this period, uh, but one of the things that was really interesting and eye-opening were some of the individuals that uh, are profiled in the book. And um, one of the individual leaders that I think really merits some attention and some closer analysis is Subhash Chandra Bose. And um, he is in many ways forgotten in the discourse about India and about that period, uh, certainly on anybody other than, you know, uh, specialists on India or people who really know the period well. So let's talk a little bit about uh, about Subhash Chandra Bose. Who, who was he and why is he so forgotten today? Subhash Bose is not forgotten in India where he uh, retains the status of a hero. And yeah, he is kind of a romantic figure, Um He's controversial partly because he sought the help of the Axis Mm -hmm. in order to free India. Um, I think that was because he had at one time met the Irish leader, uh, Dee Valera, who had advised him that the British were far too strong uh, for India to remove alone and they would need help from outside forces. So when the World War came around, he actually saw an opportunity. And he had a famous falling out with uh, Gandhi. Um, Subhas Bose had been elected the leader of the Indian National Congress, but he was postulating um, a movement at a time where Gandhi felt it was going to degenerate into Hindu-Muslim violence. And Gandhi engineered his removal. But the fact is the the affection between them never actually quite went away. After uh, Bose had escaped from prison, ended up, um, in Japan and uh, was about to join the Japanese in an attack on uh, British India, he invoked Gandhi um, as our, you know, the father of the nation and asked for his blessings in what they were going to do. So they had a curious relationship. I, I believe that their political differences never really led to any real emotional estrangement because mm. both al- always saw him as himself as a disciple of Gandhi. He just believed in violence, whereas Gandhi felt, yeah, that nonviolence was a much better way. But I think that that, 
element there that you just highlighted is part of the reason why every you're right by the way i have to tell you just for the, for a correction uh, bose is not forgotten in india it's to the rest of us uh in the you know in the western world for whom uh he is in many ways a forgotten figure so yes correct on that point but I do think that the difference in their ideological outlook is part of the reason why uh, Gandhi is revered and is known by everybody all over the world, why Gandhi has a statue in New York City in Union Square and Bose is, uh, you know, relegated to the back pages of a history book. Um, it has to do with this ideological difference and especially the notion of revolutionary, armed revolutionary struggle versus pacifism, versus reform, versus a more Gandhian outlook. So would you agree that that is part of the reason, maybe not the whole reason, but part of the reason why we see this difference in terms of how history has treated them? Well, I think what uh, why Gandhi is famous because he showed and demonstrated an entirely new way of attacking a superior power, which was nonviolence. And I think Bose is embarrassing to a lot of Indian historians as well, because he actually teamed up with the Axis. He had a meeting with Hitler and uh, tried to get him to support the Indian freedom movement, India. Uh, well, Hitler didn't want to, because he actually thought that Indians should be controlled by the British, because uh, he, he was, of course, ultimately very racist. And uh, Bose was disappointed. He went over to Japan and joined the uh, Japanese forces. So I think that's the element that makes Bose sort of not a very savory figure to a lot of uh, historians. Right, I I would agree with you, but I I do want to I do want to push back a little bit on the idea that uh, Gandhi is remembered because of a uh, innovative approach to protest and to uh, revolutionary struggle. Of course, it was. I'm not I'm not trying to denigrate Gandhi in that way, but I think that for instance, somebody like a Nelson Mandela. If you look at Mandela and how history has treated Mandela, they almost have separated the two Mandela. There was the revolutionary communist Mandela who led an armed struggle against the apartheid regime and against the colonial authority uh, or the neo-colonial authority, I guess I could say, uh, who talked about land reform, land redistribution, socialism, all of these things, uh, guerrilla warfare and so forth. That Mandela is forgotten. Then there's the later Mandela who argues for peace and reconciliation and uh, allowing white landowners to keep their lands and, to, and so forth, that Mandela is remembered. And I think it has to do with what sort of policies are advocated, not only the tactics, but also the policies that are advocated that dictate how history remembers these revolutionary figures. Yeah, you might be right about that. Yes, that's definitely... Gandhi is much more acceptable to people in power. And that's for sure. Again, Gandhi, you know, who has tremendous lessons to teach all of us, but Gandhi was not necessarily advocating things like, you know, the forcible the forcible destruction of the caste system, which there were radicals who were talking about that. He was not talking about radical land redistribution or the seizure of the institutions of uh, uh, of power or anything like that. And so in many ways I think that the British saw Gandhi, although Churchill hated 
nominated him and many others, but a lot of the British liberals and a lot of those, as history has shown, saw in Gandhi a potential way to retain some semblance of power and to retain the system to some degree post-independence. Well, I think that's where you're not right. Okay. Because it's true that Gandhi did not advocate a violent upheaval of that of those kinds. And he believed that, uh, as always, as even with the British, he believed that the conscience has to be moved. And then, well, primarily what he was doing, he was struggling to hold the Indian freedom movement together. Because you, the British, the one and only policy they had for uh, breaking up the freedom movement was divide and rule. Mm. So they were pitting upper castes against lower castes, Muslims against Hindus, um, uh, the princes against the common people. Every fission, uh, every fissure in Indian society they were trying to exploit. And that becomes very obvious in, uh, I think it was in late 1920, maybe 1929 or, or 1930, when Gandhi went to England to sit at a round table where the British had promised certain discussions on dominion status or whatever. He found that the British had brought in a huge number of leaders simply in order to say that India is not united. So Gandhi's attitude was that, and the British were in fact actively trying to sow dissension. And we know that that, that even from 1910, when the freedom movement sort of started taking off, they already had this policy of giving Muslims and Hindus separate electorates um, which actually had the effect of uh, empowering more ra- more radical elements in on both sides. Now, so Gandhi's attitude was: let's get rid of the British. Once they stop interfering, we can take rid. One, we can deal with the remaining problems. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you look at the totality of Gandhi's writings, he was absolutely completely aware that these were severe problems. He just, I, I guess, it's a question of what what's your priority, and I think that. A lot of people nowadays blame Gandhi for everything from not getting rid of the caste system to not getting rid of the class system. Mm -hmm. But this wasn't the system that Gandhi wanted. From about 1940 onwards, or well, 1935 onwards, you see Gandhi getting increasingly sidelined. Nehru is starting to come into power. And Nehru has ideas about where to take India that are very different from what Gandhi wanted. Gandhi felt that it was pointless to get rid of the British if India continued to follow the same kind of system internally. He said, we don't want, a, you know, an Indian England. It, the, the point is not to get rid of the white man, to get rid of the system. But for, in a lot of ways, Nehru, uh, he felt that Gandhi's ideas about village development were unrealistic, and he wanted a more... Soviet style and also capitalistic development at the same time. So uh, I think we ask a lot of the old man to say that he has not only to deliver freedom, but also freedom from these really incredibly immense problems that still, of course, plague India today and have gotten a lot worse since. Yeah, I, I think that that's an entirely fair point. Um, I do think, though, and just in conversations that I've had with other people, including some comrades from from India, uh, this question of um, the ruling class of Indian capitalists uh, and 
Gandhi's, um, let's not say inability or refusal, but Gandhi's belief that um, one had to be uh, selectively focused in, in, in the sense that removing British formal authority while trying to maintain some semblance of, let's call it order, is in many ways part of the reason why in the post-colonial uh, independence period, you still had a ruling class of super wealthy Indian capitalists and a majority of Indian uh, poor living on the you know the brink of poverty. And so, on the one hand, I think it's absolutely true that you can't lay at the feet of Gandhi all of the problems of Indian society. At the same time, one could make the argument that Gandhi's brand of resistance was, let's call it, more more acceptable to post-colonial imperialism and capitalism. Well, yeah, I guess that's true. That may be true. I can't really comment on that because I haven't thought about it. But I just want to give you an example of the sure. difficulties in instituting, say, a class revolution. So the Bengal famine, let's get back to that. Uh, during the famine, the Muslim League was in power. The British had put them in power. The Muslim League had to deal with the famine, had to take the fallout from the famine. Um, and But it wasn't willing to point fingers at the British. It didn't really understand the sources of the problem. So what it did was say that the Hindu landowners are the problem. And of course, the Hindu landowners were a big part of the problem. They had hoarded, but they weren't, as I show in my book, the ultimate problem. They were part of the problem. So, But what happened was that in the, after the famine was over, when you start having these really brutal riots, this entire class division between the peasants and the landowners has been transformed into a Muslim-Hindu fight. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. that the, the, it had been muddied to such an extent that it would have been impossible to sustain any kind of sustained action against an entire class because it was breaking up everywhere into a religious struggle. Right. And... Uh, there's a recent book out called Hungry Bengal, which looks at how um, the riots started, or traces them actually, to the Bengal famine. It shows that even though the riots were basically religious riots, their origins were entirely economic. So the entire, the class struggle had been completely transformed into a religious struggle. So I, I think Gandhi was very much fearful even of that, because he could see it coming. He was very close to the people and he could see that coming. Right, but and and I agree. But one of the points that you make very successfully in this book, uh, uh, again, that's Churchill's secret war, the British Empire, and the ravaging of India during World War II. Absolute must read. But one of the important points you make here is the nature of British policy exacerbating these divisions and doing so deliberately. So on the one hand, I understand everything you're saying about Gandhi, but in many ways, uh, one could make the counter argument that the struggle against the British was in many ways a struggle against all of these divisions, against all of these uh, internecine conflicts. And so uh, one could say that they're not necessarily, one can't really separate the two. You can't separate British rule from the divisions that British rule created. Well, to one extent, yes, you're right. It's also true that a lot of the industrialists were uh, products of British rule, such as the Tatas, for instance, um, 
they became extremely rich, especially as war suppliers. Um, a lot of they they were producing a lot for the for both the world wars, um, and that they were also allies of the British in that sense. Mm-hmm. And so, what you could uh, you could argue the other way and say that Gandhi managed to win the British at the these industrialists over to the Indian side instead of to the other side. So it's really difficult to know to what extent um, he made necessary compromises and to what extent he made unnecessary ones. I think it's very difficult to tell. Well, I think you're totally right about that. Uh, That's a great point. Um, Okay, well, we're coming to the end of our time here, but there's another element that I do want to discuss, and it's historically important, it's relevant to the book, and it also brings us forward to today. Uh, One of the really uh, interesting aspects that you documented really in meticulous detail is the process of partition. And we, of course, know the lasting ramifications of partition and what it has done, even how it still relates to events today. Um, The post-war history of the subcontinent, I think, is in many ways a history of the India-Pakistan conflict and the powers that really were behind each. So tell us a little bit about how this process happened and then how we need to look at it in terms of its relevance to the, uh, the, the period leading up to today. For instance, of course, traditional British support for Pakistan and for the Muslims of the of the subcontinent versus, as you already mentioned, Nehru and, and the USSR and how they played into this, and then the shift in the post-Soviet period, how that brings us forward to today. Well, that's a long question. Well, let me see if I can try to recap. So let's go all the way back to 1857. So that um, that was at the time... Um, the Great Indian Rebellion, where Muslims and Hindus, they fought together against the British. It was very bloody. It was brutal. Um, a few hundred English men, and w- men, women, and children were killed. The English claimed to have killed a thousand times more. And right till today, the death toll is disputed. What the British got out of that was the understanding that Hindus and Muslims had fought together. And that the Indian army, which had actually read the rebellion at the time, could not be counted on. So then they restructured the Indian army completely into separate, uh, so that uh, along racial groups. Mm -hmm. So that, for instance, you might have Sikhs in one battalion and all the villages in one platoon might all come from the same village and so on. So they restructured the Indian army along these communal lines, so that, as one of them said it, if uh, any one of them can fire on the other when we need them to. So the, the Indian Army, you, you see it, it's already structured in such a way that it can attack Indians. Mm-hmm. So that policy was then carried over in around 1905. The British announced a partition of Bengal, which was where a lot of the freedom talk was coming from. And the partition was along religious lines. So you would have what is now Bangladesh, basically. That partition has, in fact, come about. And you would have West Bengal, which was mostly Hindu, and uh, East Bengal, which was mostly Muslim. And there was a huge movement around that. It was a boycott movement borrowed from the Irish. And it actually worked. The partition was annulled. It worked by basically cutting down on British exports to India. Partition was annulled, but from then on, 
the British began to sow very specific communal policies. So, in fact, um, the Muslim League, which led the demand for Pakistan later, that was created at the urging of the British uh, Viceroy at the time, Lord Curzon. And the Muslims were always told that the Hindus were going to make your life miserable. And uh, tragedy it is that that's actually come to be true right now. Um, and But even then, this message didn't really have a lot of resonance among Muslims until World War II. And that's where you have this long period in which you, this country is going through this tremendous stress. A British general describes it as under occupation, basically. You have famine, you have deprivation everywhere. I write about the Bengal famine, but there was deprivation in every Indian state. And a lot of people are dying. The Indian, uh, the Congress leaders are all in prison, including, of course, Gandhi. The only leader out of prison is Jinnah, who is the Muslim League leader. And he's taken his message into a very communal direction. He was, he was himself a secular man who did not really, uh, who wasn't an observant Muslim. He ate ham sandwiches. But when it came to getting votes uh, for the Muslim League, he began to provide a very specifically Muslim nationalistic message. So before the war, there had been a kind of a local election in which the Muslim League had gotten less than 5% of the votes. After the war, they were really powerful. But they had gotten only 5% of the Muslim votes, I should say. But after the war, they were much more powerful. So it was specifically the wartime and British policies during wartime, uh, Churchill's policies of encouraging this division that led in the end to the partition of India. So after the war also what you have is this tremendous anger that as I uh, I explained earlier gets channeled into a religious direction. Mm -hmm. It was an economic anger. You have had famine. But the, all the anger was being expressed as Hindu-Muslim uh, killing. And as I also note, if anyone happened to kill or harm someone English, they would be treated in a really summary fashion. There was one point where some of the riots took a direction of being more anti-imperial, and immediately had troops in Calcutta. The riots between Muslims and Hindus were not treated with the same severity. They were allowed to run free. In fact, at one point, you have uh, some of the Muslim legislators saying, at a point in Bihar where there are, is a lot of rioting, you should mob them. Uh, you should bomb the uh, the mobs of Hindus that are going around killing Muslims. And at this point, Viceroy Wabel says, "No, we can't do that. We can't bomb bomb people." But at almost the same time, they were bombing villages in Afghanistan that mm -hmm. were uh, opposing the British. So you see, you the you see a pattern of actually letting India divide itself up, um, and. Uh, you know, what we have today now is two nuclear armed powers and I um, and uh, leaders who are, I think, simply don't understand, well, the danger of nuclear weapons. I totally agree with you there. And that really kind of brings us to this final point. And uh, India 
today and India actually just had an election and I don't want to get too far into the, into that necessarily but the political climate in India today is a complicated one because you have this uh this right-wing government that you know there are some some you know colleagues of mine in India who very much invoke the term fascism to describe a lot of the politics of what's happening in India with Hindu uh let's 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 call it uh Hindu pride or something like this or you know Muslim hatred or what have you um there's a lot of internal political dynamics happening in India at the same time there is a clear shift in global geopolitics that I think is really important because as we've noted throughout our conversation here the the contemporary landscape of the world and especially of the subcontinent is the lasting legacy of colonialism and imperialism including the conflict between Pakistan and India including many of the other conflicts that we see going on in the Middle East and so forth and this shift in geopolitics and in, and in the global structure we see with the emergence of the non-Western world, uh, the BRICS, for instance, Brazil, Russia, China, India, South Africa, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization at the initiative of Russia and China. And you see in the background of all of this, India and Pakistan actually both trying to forge ties with these non-Western institutions. Of course, Pakistan has its long-standing relationship with China. India has a long-standing feud with China, but India has historical ties with Russia. So I, I just want to point this out, and I want to get your take on it, that do you see any potential in the coming decades for these countries to, let's say, come closer together in the context of this non-Western global South world? Um, you know, I just can't see that far ahead. Um, decades, never. Um, but when, when I look at India today, I don't see it as non-aligned. It used to be non-aligned. But that's changed. I see it as very firmly in the U.S. orbit. And uh, uh, when you look at the defense arrangements with the U.S., for instance, the U.S. is trying to encircle China, um, and India is very much part of that plan. Yes. So you have massive uh, um, development of the Andaman and Nicobar Islands, which actually happens to be where my first book was set. I wrote about the Aboriginal peoples. But what's happened now is you have India developing that as a naval base in a really big way because it's just north of a, a lane, a shipping lane that's very crucial to Chinese fuel supplies. So I don't see India in the near future unless there is a total change in government, which I also don't see, um, going you know, do paying anything more than lip service to non-alignment. That's just not where India is right now. Uh, fair enough. Although uh, there are some interesting developments, uh, including the BRICS Development Bank, which is something that the uh, Indians have expressed a significant amount of interest in and being a part of. And if depending on whether the BRICS Development Bank and these other institutions emerge as true rivals to the IMF and the World Bank, uh, I, for instance, in Africa, they present a significant opportunity 
opportunity for smaller African countries. I think that there are developments happening, including the Indians moving closer to uh, the Russian military exports and buying Russian weapons as opposed to U.S. weapons. Now, again, I'm not saying that these are all great developments. I'm saying that there are tendencies in the world today that I think are markedly different than they were 25 years ago when the Soviet Union collapsed. And I think that there are changes happening in the non-Western world that uh, are, at least to some degree, potentially promising, including, for example, uh, India and China cooperating in Afghanistan, which is something that we've seen uh, come about a number of times, including in the mining sector and other things. So uh, it's just something to think about. And uh, the future of India is in many ways, obviously, the future of hundreds of millions of people, billions of people, not just in India, of course, but throughout the, uh, the, Asian, uh, the Asian space. Yes, that's true. But I think at this point, I'd like to sort of bring the discussion back to another interest of mine, which is uh, environment. And uh, well, basically what I see, the way I see China behaving in Africa and South America, it might be, it's good that it's balancing out and providing new sources of funding. At the same time, China's thirst for oil it's completely committed to this same path of development. And it's destroying large parts of the Amazon, just as you know, you and I know that Chevron destroyed uh, large parts of Ecuador at one point. But in many of these places, although they've, um, Ecuador, although it's gotten rid of, say, American imperialism, it's coming into the orbit of a different kind of imperialism. And it might be kinder, but I really don't know. And I, I I, I don't I don't really see us moving towards a solution uh, that sort of is very hopeful. I think we're going to see serious environmental problems that will sort of put a break on a lot of geopolitics or make it maybe probably actually make it much, much worse. Definite potential there. Also, uh, it's a huge subject that we would uh, probably need another hour to discuss. So hopefully I can have you back and we can talk about that because I agree on some points there and I probably disagree on some others. But we are unfortunately out of time. Uh, great conversation. I want to thank you again for coming on. Listeners, uh, the book, uh, Churchill's Secret War, you got to read it. Uh, follow Modusri's work. Uh, go to the website, modusri.com that is uh, www.madhusree modusri.com modusri Mukherjee thank you so much for coming on Counterpunch Radio thanks so much and those were great questions um Thank, it was thank, a pleasure. Thank you very much. And uh, listeners, stick with us on the other side of the break. We have a lot more to talk about uh, this week. So uh, stick with us. We'll be right back.
Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer, and um, I want to switch gears a little bit and, um, well, introduce a new guest onto the program and talk about an issue that I think is both important theoretically, but also important practically. Um, so without further ado, I want to welcome Danny Haifong onto the program. Uh, Danny is a friend of mine. He is an excellent young writer. He is a regular contributor to Black Agenda Report. Um, he is also with the organization FIST, that's Fight Imperialism Stand Together. He's based in Boston. Danny, welcome to Counterpunch Radio. Great to be here, Eric. Um, I wanted to have you on the program this week to talk about your newest piece, um, which is out, or should be out as of people listening to this program, um, entitled Self-Determination, What It Is, What It Isn't. And, you know, I find the piece really interesting and really timely, in fact, because we have so many of these conversations ongoing about, you know, so-called self-determination, what that actually means, what that actually looks like, how it's different for certain groups, or is it not different for certain groups? So let's talk a little bit about that. So maybe we could begin by you sort of outlining the concept as you see it and what, uh, you know, what, what argument you really want to make with this latest or a column in Black Agenda Report. Right. So <clears throat> the the main argument in the piece uh, about self-determination is that I think in the United States, especially given um, its character as the uh, superpower, the super imperialist state that it is, and one that's on the decline, we tend to have a hard time grasping what self-determination is. Um, self-determination is really about the development of independent political power. It is about uh, determining, being able to determine your own destiny um, as a particular people oppressed by um, the system of imperialism. That has been historically, uh, you know, what it's been about. 
And I think right now, you know, in this period that we're living in, given the uh, mass resistance against police brutality that resurged in 2014, how it's quieted down a bit um, in 2015, and all, everything that's happening around the world, the lack of um, um, understanding about what's going on in Syria and how the Obama administration has recently um, decided to escalate there all the while. Uh, giving talking points about how it will leave the Assad government alone, how it will leave the Syrian government alone. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, so many things that are happening around the globe. In the article, I, uh, I use the definition forwarded by prominent revolutionaries from history, uh, Malcolm X, Huey Newton, um, Kwame Nkrumah, Vladimir Lenin. Uh, all of these individuals were revolutionaries, part of... Of movements, um, three of them, the Black Liberation Movement and Lenin, uh, the Bolshevik Revolution. He um, he was the father of the definition of self determination in a period where you know the world was um, <clears throat> was in the midst of a war for colonial possessions. Um, talking about World War One and how uh, the Bolshevik Revolution uh, you know, laid the basis for a different. Um, an alternative political economic system of socialism in uh, a large region of the planet and really got started <clears throat> the global uh, resistance to imperialism that continues to this day. So the article really attempts to get away from some of the more unsavory uh, interpretations of self-determination, which can sometimes seem to be um, especially when we talk about the Black Lives Matter movement in particular, sometimes it can seem like self-determination is just when any individual group or people may decide on at any given time. Um, broadly speaking, before the Black Lives Matter movement, the Obama administration's rise to power um, was seen by some as just because black voters voted for Obama, it was seen as a a step towards self-determination, I think. The, yeah. uh, <clears throat> Let me jump in here real quick because I, I think what you're drawing a distinction here between, and this is really important, is the difference between an expression of self-determination and what I guess could be called an expression of self-affirmation, right? I think that we could we could maybe say that uh, chanting Black Lives Matter, uh, demanding that people uh, recognize that, quote, you know, Black Lives Matter, this is an uh, affirmation, right? This is a, basically a, 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 way of, a way of expressing a particular uh, position, whereas a, a movement for self-determination is not about affirmation, it is about <coughs> determination, which is something that I guess you're arguing here is decidedly different. Yeah, it is. And <clears throat> I think in this time right now, given the conditions that we live in in the United States, the rampant uh, levels of uh, police murders of black people, the mass black incarceration state, um, not letting up the, you know, the increasing amounts of poverty, and, as well as um, the U.S.'s uh, incessant need to wage war around the globe, I think right now the time is ripe to introduce the concept of self-determination in a way that really brings in the question of power. I think the Black is Back Coalition, Cooperation Jackson, some uh, really good efforts that don't bring any individual gain, but really get into um, self-determination as a 
um, as a principle of power and being able to independently develop and decide upon one's destiny <clears throat> outside of the influence of a foreign or occupying force. Um, let's 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 examine this here a little bit though because I I want to draw it out even further because to be in a struggle for self-determination in the world in which we're living in especially if you're talking about black america uh, uh people in this country people of color struggling for self-determination it seems to me that if it's a struggle for power and it's a, and it's a pushback against the established power then it must be by definition anti-capitalist anti-imperialist and anti-white supremacist and it can't simply be one of those three things and call itself a movement for self-determination and i think that that is it's sort of therein lies the criticism from the difference between what you're saying and movements that we've seen thus far right yes and um you know the the idea of self-determination really sprouted from the struggle, the internationalist struggle of the 20th century where, um, you know, uh, national liberation movements such as the one that occurred in Ghana led by Kwame Nkrumah um, were really attempting to build alliances with peoples who were being oppressed and repressed by um, the same ruling class, the same ruling system of imperialism. And it was on that basis that the uh, you know that the endurance and survival of uh, liberation forces in the peoples of the world was really reliant upon. <clears throat> you know, in the article, I, I do cite the Soviet Union only because I feel like it is um, one of the more uh, misconceived uh, uh, you know struggles uh, in history in this country. It was the victim of anti-communist backlash here in the United States and around the world. Um, and I think, you know, being able to study, you know, why, uh, the Soviet Union led by Vladimir Lenin and then, um, the Soviet government after that, um, and, and its connections to liberation struggles all around the world is really critical to understanding the difference between, um, you know, what is an incipient movement that we should be supporting, but also, uh, you know, understanding that, there is a lot of work to be done, um, and that this idea of self-determination, this principle of self-determination, ha has been concretely practiced. It's being concretely practiced all around the world. There's so many lessons we can draw from the resistance in Syria right now to maintain its sovereignty, the struggle of Iran to maintain its sovereignty, China. There's so many examples around the world that can um, that can really teach us lessons about about what we can do here. Um, let's let's touch on that a second because. Here's herein lies, I think, one of the major issues we have with a term like self-determination, because there are people in this world, and believe me, I, I get hate mail from them all the time, who will argue that, yes, the struggle for self-determination in Syria is the rebels. Yes, the struggle mm -hmm. for self-determination is any movement that is seeking to uh, topple one government and, and re you know reform or transform any given state and what you're arguing and what I would argue is of course that that's not the case that self-determination means something very specific and it means
means peoples and nations being able to develop free from the hegemony of an imperial system, free from the hegemony of whatever the given world system is at the time that a struggle is happening. And in this world today, we have one world imperial system with its centers in New York, on Wall Street, in Washington, in London, in Brussels, in Berlin, in a few other places here and there in the world. And this imperial system, what it's doing in Syria, what it did in Libya, what it's doing all over the world, it is resistance against that that is truly a struggle for self-determination. Yes, and this is where political education and the study of history is really important because, um, you know, I feel like a lot of those who make such uh, ridiculous claims as to the rebels in Syria being the revolutionary forces that are trying to topple Assad, you know, a corrupt regime or, you know, whatever the example may be, um, really stems from, I think, two things. One, a total misunderstanding and maybe um, an aversion to studying what's actually happening on the ground. And two, um, coming from a particular position of imperial arrogance, which does permeate through much of the society, given the position that the U.S. Um, and its imperialist system holds in the world. So there are two, there are those two things put together make it extremely difficult to, uh, to come up to you know, anyone who may or may not know, but there are also forces out there that are promoting regime change as humanitarian intervention or promoting regime change as self-determination and revolution. There are forces out here in the United States that are politically active that do such a thing, and it makes it really difficult to um, you know, forward the struggle in a manner that can make self-determination relevant to the forces that are fighting here in the United States, the, you know, the occupied forces, the, you know, oppressed peoples, and and be able to relate that struggle to uh, the fact that the same guns, courts, uh, you know, and and ruling class that controls the state is waging uh, a very similar, um, you know, war of aggression all around the world um, that it wages on black Americans, on, you know, immigrant populations, on, you know, on, on all people of color, um, especially those of, of working class character. And that, you know, that's really where we need to begin to, to, to approach the concept of self-determination because it is in that approach that will bring um, solidarity and, and an understanding of it. Well, okay, but help us to understand here what exactly you mean by uh, self-determination. In other words, what does it actually look like? Because we understand conceptually now, hopefully based on what we were just saying, conceptually what self-determination is. But once we've defined it, let's look at its aspects. What does self-determination look look like. I think that there are some key characteristics that people need to keep in mind. And um, what does it require? What does it necessitate? It it really necessitates the, um, you know, the ability to independently develop. And there are many, uh, there are many aspects to that. Um, One, especially forwarded by the Black Panther Party was the right of self-defense. And that was advocated. Exactly. Um, the right of self-defense, the right to, um, you know, the right to be able to develop a, an economy and a, 
you know, a sustainable economy that's, that develops on different social relations than the one, uh, the ones forced upon us by the capitalist system. It really requires a complete separation and secession from the system of oppression in question. Um, and in this period, that means the system of monopoly capitalism, the system of imperialism must, you know, in the end, all be all must be overthrown. I mean, there's just no way um, any <clears throat> anyone can uh, can live in peace, uh, can live under the necessary peace to um, to practice self determination in in a global sense. So there is there are many states right now, such as the Cuban Revolution, such as you can look at the DPRK, you can look at China that are holding on to their independence and sovereignty. But at the end of the day, what it really necessitates is the overthrow of the hegemony of U.S. imperialism so that forces all around the world, including the ones here in the United States, can really be able to build a material basis for um, for independent development. And, and that's really the struggle that's going on all around the world today. Is- I agree with you, Danny. I agree with you. But I think that there are two things at issue here. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not debating you on it, but I think that we need to present the full picture here. On the one hand, what you're describing is the struggle for self-determination internationally on a global scale. And of course, we agree there. But we also, I, I think although maybe correct me if I'm wrong, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but would we also agree that the struggle for self-determination is a localized struggle as well? It is on the level of communities, within communities that have to struggle for their own self-determination. For instance, you have in in the United States, you have a quote-unquote a black America, but the conditions of uh, working class black people in, in Harlem and in North Philadelphia and in Detroit are not the same as for the black bourgeoisie in Atlanta or, you know, what have you. So when we're talking about self-determination, yes, it's on a national level and an international level, but it is also rooted in communities. And I think that that's one of the uh, critical levels at which this issue really has to be approached. Definitely. And I think you got a really good point there in terms of how self-determination definitely has a class character to it. And I think over the last eight years, we've seen... Um, under the you know rule of Obama, what that, what the significance of that really is, the Obama administration was you know seen by some as an expression of self determination. But when we really look at it, he was, uh, he is still uh, leading the um, imperialist power um, that wreaks havoc on you know working class black people here and wreaks havoc over um, oppressed people all around the globe and. So can we really see somebody who was created and molded and presented by Wall Street and the forces of imperialism as someone who represents um, a community at large that is oppressed here in this country? And, you know, my opinion, I say no. So, yes, it's very important to understand that at the local level, um, especially when it comes to issues of police brutality and uh, the prison state. Uh, the surveillance state that uh, the struggles that Hands Up United and a lot of groups are fighting for right now really do present uh, examples of self-determination that we must look at and we must um, be, uh, get to a more concrete definition of a concept so we can 
you know, begin to forward these ideas and, and make them real in the consciousness of, of, of people on the ground. I think um, uh, Black is Back Coalition right now, they're forwarding a, an, an effort for black community control of the police. And that, and that demand in and of itself is an expression of self-determination because it really gets at the crux of, well, um, black people are being murdered by the police. That means they need control over um, who and what polices them. Um, and that, you know, that really is the, the definition. Of the I, think that, I think that there's, yes, I agree with you. And I think that there's even more uh, room for us to, to, to fill out this definition of what it would actually look like. Because one of the understandings here, I think, implicit in our conversation, Danny, is that the struggle for self-determination is, by its very definition, a revolutionary struggle. And I think that in defining it in that way, we have to understand that revolutions, all revolutions, uh, inherently seek to seize and con- and take control and transform the institutions of power, the institutions that uh, that, that govern the way in which people live. And so a revolution seizes those institutions. It seizes control of them. Now, on a localized level, a a revolutionary movement for self-determination must take control over the institutions that govern life within a given community. And I think that that is the the, the main struggle at issue here. How do – so when when Black is Back Coalition says community control of the police, that doesn't simply mean uh, community oversight over a foreign police force that's occupying a neighborhood. It literally means community control of the police. That means self-defense. That means self-reliance. That means that the community is able to police itself. That's something that is very powerful and very significant. And there's a lot of, um, I would say, built-in um, uh, nuances to it that need to be sort of examined here. What we mean when we say self-reliance. Right. Yeah. Um, And and I think that's going to be an ongoing conversation as this struggle develops because, um, you know, the conditions that are creating these conversations and creating the need for such a movement, you know, are not going to change unless, uh, you know, the people rise up and and change them and smash them. So there are um, there are definitely there's definitely so much room to begin to examine what self-determination is going to look like on the ground. I think one of the best examples for me and one of the more influential examples for me was studying the, the efforts and the organization of the Black Panther Party um, of the 60s and 70s. They really had a model um, based on, uh, you know, taking care of while developing the conscious of, consciousness of the Black community, which... Um, has not been repeated ever since. Um, efforts to arm people, arm black people, so they could protect themselves from uh, the police. Um, and then when that was made illegal, uh, going into the community and understanding that the system of capitalism dispossesses black people of the means of survival, so creating survival programs that uh, were really critical in building the base and, and the strength of the Black Panther Party for as long as it was able to endure the repression, um, you know, and all of the reforms that the imperialist system were maneuvering um, around them. So, 
you know, looking at examples in the in history, but also looking at examples right now. Uh, that could be globally. That could be here. When it comes to some efforts that get no attention, like Cooperation Jackson, uh, good comrade Kali Akuno's, um, you know, effort in um, in Jackson, Mississippi, looking at these things and understanding that uh, we need to build off of them and we need to begin to discuss the historical significance uh, of self determination and and begin to to figure out in our organizations, in our, uh, you know, in our groups or, you know, as the Black Panther Party, it started with two people in a room <laughs> discussing, you know, what the hell are we going to do here? This, this movement isn't where it needs to be right now. Well, there's two things that I want to say. Um, on Number one, I agree with you about rising up and smashing the system, but I don't think that that's actually, given the current situation, I don't think that that is necessarily the primary uh, avenue that can be that, that can be traversed at this moment. I think that what there needs to be is a simultaneous rising up to smash and a building. You have to be you have to be building simultaneously and. In many ways the building almost takes precedent given the nature of the situation now remember that when the panthers were emerging in the late 60s um you had a time in the united states of relative economic prosperity um mm-hmm. it w- there there were working class jobs they existed in those american cities where black people were being oppressed where the black panther party took root there still were working class jobs there still was a means of uh working class survival more or less uh today is a very different situation and any movement for self determination for self reliance and for self defense has to incorporate this question. How do we build localized economies? How do we create jobs locally in our communities? How do we do so without simply accepting the pandering of the Democrat or the Republican, without simply looking to the established institutions, but rather doing it uh, on our own, that is, these communities doing it on their own? This is a fundamental question in the 21st century for anybody interested in self-determination. How do you seize control of quote unquote the means of production, or put in more uh, you know contemporary terms, how do you seize control of economic growth? Right, and it gets to the question. I think that um, you know not to not to divert the conversation, but it gets into the question of socialism because um, when we think about self determination, we think about separating and taking control and seizing the means of production, the ability to develop independently, politically, economically. Um, culturally, all of that requires power. It requires the ability to define phenomena and make it act in a desired manner. That's Huey Newton's definition of power. And that um, that really necessitates uh, the, the seizure of the means of production and how to get there um, in this stage where, you know, we are really in um, a period of decline when it comes to the imperialist system. And so, um, it is wreaking havoc all over the world, but it's wreaking havoc here in the United States. The austerity, the privatization, um, you know, the deindustrialization, the complete control over Wall Street, over the, um, you know, over the lives of everybody from students to um, um, to working class people. This, these are real critical problems that were not the case just three, four, five decades ago, um, and. 
so we need to examine them and be able to um, act in a way that uh, that approaches these conditions where they are, um, and, yeah. and that's critical. And also, you know, one of the things that I always advocate is understanding what some of this some of this uh, traditional. Uh, socialist terminology means in a contemporary setting. So you mm-hmm. say seizing control of the means of production, right? That's 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 textbook Marx. Okay, yeah. we're we're talking Marx. We're talking capital and and the Communist Manifesto. But what does that look like today? If you're a working a, a single mother working to support of uh, you know two children in you know uh, in Detroit or in Chicago or in New York or Boston or whatever. What does the what does that mean for you? Well, on a conceptual level, it doesn't mean a lot. What right. it means to you is is there a better way for me to feed my children? Is there a better way for me to generate wealth for myself to feed my children? It all comes down to these very basic things, and that's what the Panthers were talking about when they were talking about these survival programs, the the, the breakfast program for children, right? A survival program rooted in the needs of a community. And I think when we're talking about seizing the means of production, you got to be talking about uh, uh, creating alternative means of agricultural output, right? Mm-hmm. So that could be organic gardens in these vacant lots that could be you know uh, gardens being grown in individual homes and then collectively shared within communities or however that would work right there's many different models for how that would be done but that's a small example of quote unquote seizing the means of production in this case food production the same has to be true of industrial production there are new technologies emerging today that allow people to be able to do things like create industrial output on a very small scale right? 3D printers and, and, and the like, right? There are many new ways to reconceptualize some of these terms like seizing the means of production. And I think it is a reconceptualization of some of these ideas that's going to be most relevant to a 21st century post-industrial capitalist setting such as we have in the U.S. Yeah, for sure. There, you know, a lot of it is going to be about how do we um, you know, how do we move forward and develop the struggle um, that will inevitably lead to a confrontation with the state? And that's not going to start out with people immediately confronting the state. That's going to start out with efforts and organizations that are really trying to approach the real problems of oppressed people and the real problems of, of any community. And that's going to um, really have to be multidimensional, multifaceted. Um, but it's also going to have to be guided by, um, you know, an idea um, and a revolutionary idea. And I think the the ability to join together the very concrete struggles on the ground against police brutality, whether it's um, new efforts for self-defense and, and struggling for what community control actually look like, um, while also understanding that, um, you know, the revol- a revolutionary idea. While we're not fighting for ideas, the ideas in our head do guide us and do give us direction and, and fortitude in being able to withstand the inevitable repression that any revolutionary struggle here in the United States will incur yep. um, when it should develop. It's the it's the classic avant garde, right? Advance and defend simultaneously, right? That's the Napoleonic. Um, military tactic that we now think of uh, in terms of 
art, but also in terms of revolutionary vanguard movements, right? The vanguard. In other words, you want to be out in front, moving moving the struggle forward while simultaneously defending the institutions that are being destroyed. And so we could take a look at uh, the example of schools and the privatization and charterization of schools, right? You have a corporate movement, corporate capitalist movement that is seeking to undermine and destroy public education at its very foundation through charter schools, through, uh, you know, Teach for America and various other programs, breaking the teachers' unions, deprofessionalizing teaching and so forth. So you have, on the one hand, the need to create new educational institutions in our communities. On the other hand, you need to defend the ones that are already in place from these vultures who are seeking to destroy it. And I think that 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 sort of collaboration or co um I don't know, parallel development of this defense and advancement that has to be at the root of any revolutionary movement, especially one for quote unquote self-determination. Definitely right now we're uh we are particularly in a period where defense is, is mostly where the struggle is, the defense of yeah. public education, the defense of uh, social programs, the defense of unions, because unions are being busted everywhere, including here in Boston, where maybe the most progressive union in this state is being destroyed by the Veolia Corporation, the school bus drivers. Um, there are, uh, you know, the defense uh, and the protests against police brutality um, we're really in a defensive period because the offensive that imperialism has waged over the last 30 or 40 years has changed the dynamics, has changed the conditions from which we operate. And, um, you know, we really take a movement for self-determination that is able to define what that is, but also be able to act concretely and really forward the, you know, the heroic struggle that happened in Chicago recently um, with a diet school, um, you know, saving that school and be able to, you know, concretely connect with um, some of the, some of the efforts that are happening here and, and create new ways of, of, of developing self determination and developing um, real efforts, uh, you know, that 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 can make it real for us. That can make it real for the people in question and make it real for um, you know, the overall struggle. There's no doubt. And I think that, again, we have to keep in mind two important points here. On the one hand, we have to, we have to undermine all of these efforts to destroy these communities, but we also have to re-envision what revolutionary struggle looks like because, you know, and my purpose is not to denigrate any current movements or whatever, but I do think that so many of the quote-unquote movements that we see emerge, and I was particularly active with Occupy Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw it was definitely true there from what, I, from what I've seen, although I haven't really been an active participant from what I've seen of the Black Lives Matter movement. Similar mm-hmm. issue there, and that is that this is, as I said in the beginning of our conversation, self-affirmation, right? right. It, to me, it is almost like the uh, you know political movement equivalent of taking a selfie. You know, and um, there is an element of um, 
immaturity, I think, and that's to be uh, to be expected and understood and appreciated even by movements that are led by young people. But at the very same time, there is a a lack of political education and a yep. lack of uh, real substantive revolutionary minded leadership. And because you don't have those things, they are not real movements for self determination, in my view. And what we're talking about here, especially on the community level, self determination, self defense, self reliance means the seizure and control of the very mechanisms by which that community exists and until such time as that can be done all of the rest of it is just revolutionary jargon yeah uh and you know i think i think that's the real struggle right now is that um the lack of political education and consciousness of of history politics theory really being able to understand the conditions around us um, more than just at a visceral level, because I think we all get into the struggle from the very visceral experience of exploitation and oppression, or at least the vast majority of us get into it um, from that perspective. But it's not until we begin to see the world and begin to see um, how exactly um, the system that we're fighting against works and and what people have done and what people continue to do to change that situation, um, it is until we do that. Where, um, and until we do that, that we can really, um, you know, move towards a real, concrete practice of self determination. And you know, I also participated a bit in the Occupy movement because I was actually in New York City back then. I participated a little bit. In the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, and I think one of the real frustrations for um, for some is the the lack of leadership and how decentralized it is promoted as being. When then you will see, um, I think it happened in Occupy, and I think it's happening now with the Black Lives Matter movement, with the rise of Duray McKesson and the. Um, the, and, and, and some other leaders of other organizations where we are seeing a centralized leadership, but the centralized leadership is not accountable to anybody. It's not, um, it's not chosen by anybody. Nor, is it, uh, nor is it revolutionary. It's in oh. many ways counter-revolutionary. Yes, exactly. Connected to corporate institutions like Teach for America. And, um, and that is, I think that is the real frustration right now and, and something we really have to look at. And I think, you know, I write for Black Agenda Report because it is one of the few media outlets that takes the courageous and, and, and truthful position that we have to look at the leaders who are purporting to be representing us as oppressed people um, and begin to question, well, what do they actually stand for? Do they stand for the revolutionary ideas and fulfillments of the needs of the people? Or do they represent um, the forces of oppression and, and the forces of imperialism that are, are wreaking havoc and seeking any way to maintain its rule. So, so yeah, there's, 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 you know, to finish up our conversation since we're pretty much out of time here, but I will say this though, that is a failing of a movement. It was the failure of, of Occupy, just as it is the failure of Black Lives Matter, that they can be 
co-opted and taken control of by these corporate surrogates, these these proxies for the corporate world. I mean, Dorian McKesson, that is what he is. I mean, Teach for America, Charter Schools, Privatization, Hillary Clinton. I mean, that's the world that he comes from. And then he catapults to <coughs> one of the, if not the most prominent, single most prominent Black Lives Matter leader. That's a failing of that movement to, to allow that to happen, just as it was with Occupy. And I think that we need to be considering what movements look like and what movements are supposed to be such that they can't be co-opted. For instance, you can't have a corporate uh, proxy take over a truly community-based revolutionary movement. It's not possible. Why? Because it's rooted in the community, because it's rooted in the people that it is serving, um, rather than this, what I would call a movement of self-affirmation. So I think that we need to be re-examining what revolutionary uh, practice looks like, what self-determination looks like, and what movements and movement building actually look like if we want to really be moving ourselves forward. Yes, uh, you hit it right on the head. That, that that's exactly what we need to be doing. Because if a um, if a struggle is rooted in the community, it has to be destroyed. It cannot be co-opted. That's historically been the case in so many instances. Whether we look at Malcolm X's organization of African American Unity, Black Panther Party, we can look at so many examples in the past of how organizations have to be destroyed. They can't be co-opted if they're rooted in the very people. Um, you know, that are struggling against the system of imperialism. But what we have right now um, is what I think can be seen in a positive light in that we always have to be measuring the barometer of the consciousness of, of you know, the, the revolutionary classes of the oppressed. We have to always be doing that because that that is really what we are trying to forward and develop so we can collectively um, overthrow this system and create a new one. Uh, so right now we'll receive the Black Lives Matter movement with some unsavory leaders like McKesson. Uh, that's the failure of a movement, but it's also uh, you know opportunity to say, okay, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, um, uh, you know, it's led by these leaders and that you know that's unfortunate, and that's that's a, that's the failure of the movement. But we can now understand that the movement will not be created by hashtag. It won't be created by a um, you know a quick surge of resistance, a quick surge of um, of feelings of of you know feelings of oppression. It will be created by um, the real hard gritty, uh, you know, uh, and, and honestly time consuming and not very, um, it's not uplifting. Like it doesn't, doesn't give us the instant gratification that we, we so hope for sometimes it's really going to be a difficult struggle. Um, so, and it's not going to get the television, the corporate media press. We have to understand all of these things so we can, um, stay strong and, and continue to, to to be a part of uh, the development of a real movement for self-determination. 
No doubt about it. Well said, Danny. All right, um, we're going to have to leave it there. We're out of time. Um, Danny Haifong, I want to thank you for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Uh, guys, you should be you should be following Danny's work. I mean, he's 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 a brilliant young young writer, young activist who I think um, I mean his stuff is consistently great. So check out his column um, on Black Agenda Report. What is that? Every Wednesday. Yep, every Wednesday. Wednesdays on Black Agenda Report. Um, this week, the article again that we've been that we've been discussing: self determination, what it is, what it isn't. Excellent piece raises a lot of really interesting questions. Hopefully, uh, people, you 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 you're thinking about these questions as well because really we're all on the same side. We're all working towards the same goal. So let's come up with something that really truly works. Danny, thanks again for coming on Counterpunch Radio. Thank you, Eric. 